You're listening to a podcast brought to you by international law firm Trowers and Hamlins, combining market sector thought leadership, advice, and ideas, helping businesses and governments prepare for the future. Hello, everyone. Thank you very much for joining us on this ESG Perspectives podcast. My name is Tom Reynolds. I'm a partner at international law firm Trowers and Hamlins. Today, I'm delighted to have with us Danielle Welsh-Rose, who is head of the Sustainability Institute for the APAC region and the ESG Investment Director for APAC at the Asset Manager Aberdeen. I hope Danielle doesn't mind me describing her as a trailblazer in the field and someone whose insights will be incredibly valuable today. Danielle, it's a real pleasure to have you with us and thank you for taking the time to speak to us. We are also joined by my fellow partner and head of banking and finance in Malaysia, Elias Mubarak. Elias, thanks also not just for being here today, but, but actually also for mentoring me in my podcast journey with this being the first I have recorded. Um, so I feel a little bit sorry for you both. That's too kind, Tom. Hello, everyone. Okay, so for, the, for those who haven't tuned into one of our ESG Perspectives uh, podcasts previously, let me briefly set the scene. What we're absolutely not doing today is, is talking about what we and Trous and Hamlins as a business uh, are doing in this space. There, there is a whole range of that. Uh, that, that we could talk about separately. Um, I'll briefly mention that, that most recently we've announced our own target of achieving net zero emissions by 2030, which is in- incredibly exciting um, and will, will present a lot of challenge and opportunity for us. What, what we're doing in this series and what we're really excited about is it, it's part of our ambition and interest in, in understanding what the ESG agenda, or however that may be described, responsible business and, and responsible investing, what, what that all means for the business uh, and the ecosystem around business in Malaysia and the APAC region. And we're speaking to people in a range of industries. And today it's, it's great to have Danielle with us talking um, from the asset management industry's perspective. Danielle, we, we've spoken ahead of this podcast and, and one of the things Elias and I were, were really interested to hear about in that conversation was your career, which has really seen you involved in the ESG field since the start. Uh, and, and to hear how things have developed in that 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 period uh, in broad terms can we can we sort of start the conversation today with that absolutely and I should just say thank you for having me and I feel like this is the next chapter in my career because it's the first time I've ever been on a podcast before so (laughs) things are still evolving (laughs) it's exciting absolutely so I've been in this space for longer than I'd probably care to admit I think it's around 20 years now which probably makes me one of the veterans, just one of the survivors <laughs> in ESG, <laughs> to be honest. Um, so, yeah, I've done this since the very, very start of my career. Um, and in terms of how I got into it, it was a little bit, um, I guess, roundabout in that I, when I was in high school, I was very passionate about social justice and environmental issues. And I sort of vaguely had this idea that I should somehow pursue a career in that. But the options available back then were more around, you know, you could, you could work for an environmental protection authority doing sort of licensing and regulation, um, or you could go and be an environmental scientist and, or perhaps a social worker, and that was sort of it. And I was very interested in, you know, working in an area where I could have a real impact and influence change if possible. And so, you know, my unsophisticated way back in high school, I thought, well, you know, I guess power is where money is and who's got the money and that's in Australia it was pension funds and fund managers and I thought well maybe I could somehow work in that space and also in sustainability and therefore make an impact and so it was a very vague kind of notion and of course at that time there were no university degrees that played directly into that and so I sort of had to cobble together my education based on that so 
I started off doing a commerce and arts degree, so I could do geography, which was environmental studies, and also sort of the business and commerce side. Um, and then, you know, over my career, I added, uh, so I should say that I didn't complete the commerce side of that degree because accounting uh, got the better of me. So I just did the Bachelor of Arts degree. And then, um, you know, I, I went into a Master's in Environment after that, which was a multidisciplinary sustainability degree. And then I did a graduate diploma for applied finance and investments, and then a Juris Doctor uh, Law qualification. So just so I had to piece together all the bits and pieces that I thought were important um, over wow. a large number of years. <laughs> and so, um, yeah. It was it's a lot. I think I've, I've maxed out um, on how much the government will loan me for university studies. I didn't know there was a ceiling. There is a ceiling. <laughs> I hit it before I finished my law degree. Uh, so then, you know, I was sort of doing my undergraduate degree and thinking about how I could get into this vague world of business and finance and sustainability. And there was a job advertised with a pension fund here in Melbourne, and that was a corporate sustainability role. It was brand new for the, that organisation that hadn't done this before, and it was a role that was around setting up their internal sustainability approach, policies, frameworks, and so um, it was a very entry-level role. They didn't really know what the role would look like, so it was a bit experimental, and I came in, and it was my job to set up all the um, environmental policies and um, you know staff volunteering and things like that, and so that job was really interesting and very varied in that, um, you know, one of the things that will never leave me is that we put in place a recycling program, um, which now is obviously just, you know, everybody has that. And But at the time, we went about it by removing everybody's personal waste bins from underneath their desks, which okay. you wouldn't think would be a problem. And it caused a huge internal <laughs> angst. Um, people were very attached to their bins and didn't want their personal bin to go and didn't want to have to use centralised recycling bins. And um, that was my first lesson, I think, in change management mm. and try to understand people's motivations and what they cared about and then, you know, working with that. So, um, and the other side of that was then testing the recycling system by physically digging through people's waste and recycling bins every month um, <laughs> with a, a team of volunteers. So that was very job but the organization so the pension fund at the time you know after a few years of that work could see that the value that that brought to the culture of the organization um, and that you know there was a lot of we did a lot of work around sustainability and staff were always involved and staff felt a lot of pride and ownership in that work and we're really you know we really I guess it, it drew everyone together and they felt really positive about coming to work and being part of that and feeling like they were doing something that was aligned with their values and the pension funds membership base were teachers so highly educated mm -hmm. um, cohort of people who you know I guess understood these issues around environmental and social um, concerns and so when we started talking externally about what we were doing internally our membership base got very excited about it and wanted to know more and um, we were finding that it was drawing in new members and so the pension fund just thought well you know, this is giving us so much value and helping us attract new members, but also attract employees and retain them. And it's really helping with the culture. Then if we invested in companies who are doing similar things, then surely that would ultimately deliver better value for our members. And so uh, the organisation then added um, sustainability capabilities to the investment team. And so I, um, a few years into that, moved across to the investment team and that's how I got kind of started on the investment side. So yeah, it was a, 
a bit of an experimental time, I guess, but we were also one of the first pension funds or investors, I think, in the world to be looking at sustainable investing that wasn't ethical-based investing. So, that, again, it was quite new. Um, yeah. You know, we, yeah, we were, I guess, just making our own way um, and all the things that kind of are part of that. So I don't know if I'm going to expand on that at all, but that's a long, another long <laughs> story. No, I mean, it's, it's fascinating. I think it reinforces what I said about you being a trailblazer at the start, really. I mean, it's, uh, you know, your, your journey is one that I think a lot of young people um, today are, are pursuing and placing a significant amount of value on. So the, the fact that you were one of the earlier adopters and pioneers in, in that space and taking your personal passions and thinking, it doesn't matter that there's not the opportunity directly identifiable for me, I'm going to work out how to to navigate that and find it and, and make it make it happen, which I think is really inspirational. And it sounds like where you were at that time had a, a, a management approach to to this being kind of really important for, for the organisation. How important would you say that is? And 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 what would you say are the, the key? I mean, we're we're sort of sat sat here in Malaysia and and the ESG agenda and the challenges and opportunities around that are, are really a, a key focus. And a lot of that that's often climate change related. But where would you say the, the sort of the key drivers are today in, in developing that change at a, outside of purely the institution? So I would say firstly that I think this is changing over time, but certainly prior to the last couple of years, for an organisation to take sustainability or ESG seriously, it absolutely needs buy-in and leadership from the very top. Like it can only go so far if it's driven from the bottom or from the middle. You need mm-hmm. that buy-in it's about cultural change and and ultimately it's about corporate strategy and so you you need that buy-in and you need that visible support coming down from the top but in terms of drivers outside of organizations I mean just broadly speaking there's there's a lot of regulatory change happening around the world so not just in this region um, for the investment sector but also for corporates and and other other sectors as well we're clearly in a time of energy transition around climate change and, and moving towards a renewable electricity supply there's I think regulatory drivers happening from you know I think there's also the the pressure that various organizations are getting from customer bases or in our in our case clients um, and investors and investors so I think there's there's a lot of different pressure points there's also depending on what sort of organization you're talking about there can also be pressure from non-governmental organisations as well. Yeah, I think there's a lot of different pinch points and, and those can change very quickly. And so, you know, I was just speaking to a colleague this morning about an Australian organisation that I, I will not name, but a listed company um, that's been in the press a lot lately. And, you know, there's been a report out around some issues around um, systemic sexual harassment and racism and bullying within that organisation. And, you know, that is limited to that organisation, but it means that the entire sector will now uh, be under the spotlight for those same issues and not just from investors, but also from the media and activist groups and you know, end investors as well. And so, yeah, these things can pop up overnight and, and provide a pressure point as well. And it, and it sort of drives a speed of change that, that we, we probably haven't seen before, which, you know, I suppose technology and social media are huge enablers of, of that as well. Exactly. So I think that's a really interesting story there that you just shared, Daniel. I think it, it demonstrates or illustrates the breadth of the ESG sphere. Because uh, I think people tend to focus either on the climate change aspect or to some extent on the governance aspects. But there's the social and sustainability aspects. I mean, the story you've just mentioned around 
workplace bullying really highlights how broad the ESG spectrum and agenda can be. So, I mean, in terms of diversity and inclusion, how important is that, do you think, in, in your industry and when you make your investment decisions? So I could talk about this issue forever, so I would try not to, um, for the sake of everyone's sanity and patience. You know, so I think we've all read a lot of studies and reports around diversity inclusion and the importance of having diverse groups of people, and I mean that in a broader sense, so we're not just talking about gender or um, cultural backgrounds, but also you know, educational backgrounds and ways of thinking and personality types as well. So all of us can recognise that when you're sitting around a table with people who all think the same, it's a very lovely, comfortable place to be. Everyone agrees with each other, make decisions quickly, you can move on and you know go out for a coffee, basically. But the best way to be making decisions is when you can sit around a table with a group of people who not only bring different perspectives and can challenge each other on those, but that feel safe and comfortable enough to bring those different perspectives to the table and challenge the status quo and challenge decisions as well. So you know, we often talk about diversity without the inclusion element, but um, you know, you one won't work without the other. And so it's about creating that inclusive environment as well. So we've read the research. We know that diverse groups do ultimately make better decisions. And so this is something that, you know, we should all be striving for in our organisations. And also, you know, just even just thinking about customer and client bases that, you know, your decision-making groups, your leadership teams in your organisation should really best reflect the customer base that you're working with as well. So, and those, those groups, the diversity within those groups. So the investment industry is... The general statement across the globe is quite notoriously known for its lack of diversity in all the different facets of diversity, and I think that's not not a secret. It's very male-dominated, tends to be you know, from the same sort of cultural background and even the same universities and some qualifications. And so you're getting people sort of from the same backgrounds through the same funnel, like making the same decisions. And so you don't really get that culture of necessarily challenge at the top level. So I think... It's a very difficult issue to tackle because it's not, you know, you're up against the systemic barriers that are created by you know, the way we're all raised and the societies that we live in. So something that organisations like ours are trying to tackle at that organisational level, but you're still working within those systemic backgrounds that are built up. So it's an issue we also look at um, in our underlying companies that we invest in because obviously we want the best leaders at the table in those companies. So in Australia, for example, we have put together an expectation statement for the companies that we've invested in through other listed equity strategies to be very clear that we're expecting, we call it the 40-40-20 split, so 40% women, 40% male, 20% any gender in between on company boards, but more importantly, I think company executive teams. So the focus has very much been on boards, but the real decisions and most of the day-to-day decisions happen at that executive level. And so the, the diversity of you know, backgrounds and thought should be very strong at that level. And um, we've also got some very clear expectations around cultural diversity and other forms of diversity as well. And so that's something we've communicated to companies. Um, it's something we engage with them on. And it's something we ultimately vote, uh, proxy votes at AGMs on as well. And that's opened up some really interesting conversations with companies and possibly straying into territory that you wanted to cover later on in this podcast. But we do a lot of corporate or company engagement as part of our, our active ownership approach at Aberdeen. And, and we're not alone. You know, this is an approach used by lots of investors in, in different ways. But, you know, it's when you really, you're sitting down with uh, company directors or chair people or executive teams or a combination thereof and talking to them about, you know, whatever issue it is that, that you you think is material. And so for us, um, you know, that could be any manner of things, not just ESG related, but uh, often governance issues are what comes up in those conversations. And 
after we had issued our, our expectation statement, we had a lot of these listed companies contacting us. You know, a lot of them were just sort of relatively straightforward statements that this is our diversity policy, this is our you know, current proportion of females on board and executive tense. But we had one from a company that was really interesting. It was very, very supportive to so say this is amazing. We've been waiting for this kind of um, you know, level of expectations to come through from investors. Like this is going to really you know, help. And you know, that was really nice to hear because we also got some responses that were less fluttering. But it did open up some conversations um, with some of those those groups where it gave us really insights into how those organisations think about issues like this as a proxy for how they think about other issues. And so these engagements often open up a window into the corporate culture of the organisation that you're talking to and the decision-making methods or lack thereof sometimes that those companies undertake. And so, you know, there was one organisation, which again I'm not going to name, um, a large listed entity in Australia that their response to us was extremely backward and not evidence-based and a little bit disturbing and um, <laughs> to be frank. And so on further investigation and further conversations, you know, it really did highlight there were some cultural challenges within that organisation. And that for our equities team is a bit of a red flag into this is how they think about this issue, this is their processes around this issue, then what does that mean for other strategic decision-making processes and, and methods of working. And so, you know, sometimes going in and engaging with a company on one issue can really open up a window to, to the broader issues within the organisation. I think echoes what we've been trying to do as an organisation as well, just to become better as an organisation, as well as a law firm. Um, we've been, uh, we've, we've, had, we've always had a fairly solid base from a, well, at least in the recent past, uh, we've been around since 1776, so you can imagine there's been quite a few cultural shifts wow. and changes <laughs> over that time. <laughs> exactly, but but in the in the in the last few decades, certainly there's been there's been a push within the firm towards more diversity and inclusion, specifically because it's been recognised that it results in better teams, better decision making, a better ability to attract clients as well who will come from different aspects and different spheres. Different and have different viewpoints and problems. And so if you have a more diverse set of lawyers at the table, they're more likely to come up with a solution that works for the client. So it, it makes sense and it, it results in a more dynamic, you know, fun um, workplace as well, generally speaking. We're trying to build on that sort of base. Um, for example, we're looking into, this hasn't been rolled out yet, but we're looking into sort of blind TVs for interviews. So having the names of universities, for example, redacted, I think, which goes to the point that you were saying about how at the board level, uh, in a lot of industries, you'll have people from a very select few institutions, which creates potentially a, well, doesn't potentially create, it does create a barrier to entry for, for people from various socioeconomic backgrounds, for example, which is a shame. So yeah, something we're, we're looking to build on because we see that as, as being good for business. And it's very, Good, I suppose, and reassuring to hear that from your perspective that that's how that you would agree with that, and that's how you look at your um, yeah. industries as well. But can I also say on that as well? It's just, I mean, just even if you kind of zoom back out from the issue a little bit, if you're only hiring one type of person from one type of background, I mean, you're severely limiting yourself in terms of access to talent. Yeah, you know, there's a whole yeah. huge pool of other people out there that could contribute amazing things in different ways to organisations that you're just not tapping into. So it's also 
a really smart way to operate if you're just looking at it from that perspective. And I think you made a really important point there about the, the barrier to entry as well. I think there's always this, without opening a can of worms, this discussion around um, quotas and merit-based hiring and things like that. And it's just, I think, um, you know, if you wait for those barriers to just naturally come down, you'll be waiting for probably another couple of hundred years, I think, before you see much progress. And so, you know, I think there's that conversation, that grown-up conversation to be had really about understanding that there are these barriers and this role of kind of privilege that, that, that exist in these instances and that you actually do need to kind of forcefully take some of those barriers down. I mean, forcefully, not in the literal sense, but, you know, to really push through with, you know, quotas or targets and, and to track those changes as well. I think there's definitely a role for that. Because otherwise, if you're assuming everything is a meritocracy already, then you're clearly saying that only one type of person has merit. I also like what you're saying, Ben, about the, the, the distinctions between diversity and inclusion. You know, they're often just, it's often wrapped together as, as, a, as a title and, and people assume it's one thing and it's, it's for sure having that diversity. But then even if you've been through the journey of achieving that diversity, it's having genuine inclusion. And I remember reading an article of a, a general counsel in in UK who had run a series of panel interviews, beauty parades for law firms. And one of the law firms had turned up with two white males uh, and then people, you know, some some, uh, women and people from different backgrounds, but it was the two white males who did all of the talking in the interview. And they just thought, well, you know, you're just, you know, this is lip service, really. You know, what, what is, this is not inclusion. This is, this is purely diversity and they're kind of both equally important if you're going to deliver everything you, you've talked about in, in change and, and growth in business. And it's something we hugely focus on, whether it's you know, reverse mentoring and me talking to junior lawyers about how I should be doing things and what I should be thinking about as much as, you know. It's always a scary conversation. <laughs> it is, it is. I mean, my, my daughter does it to me. She's eight years old. And uh, I think this, this could be the last sort of um, combustion engine car we ever buy. Uh, based on what she's been learning about. And so there's a very <laughs> bright future, you know, through the education system. Well, Danielle, thank you very much. And Elias as well. That's unfortunately all we've got time for in this episode. But as we know between us, there's, there's quite a bit more we want to cover when it comes to looking at the asset management industry and the ESG agenda it is facing and exploring. So we'll talk again in a, in a second episode shortly. Thank you very much again for your time. You have been listening to a podcast brought to you by Trowers and Hamlins. Find us at Trowers.com and join in the conversation on Twitter at Trowers or find us on LinkedIn and Instagram.